Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. This is gorgeous because I'm sitting here at the table in our music room with the maestro, the piano at his left elbow, so he can swing round. Am I close enough to the microphone now? Yes, you you are. Yes, no, you're fine. Right. He's obviously an amateur with microphones, but not with a projected voice. Stevie, we've talked before a bit about British music and how it developed. (laughs) I want to discover a little bit more about how we got to much more modern British music. Where did it come from? How did it start? Oh, that, well, that's... No, you've a... just got to just jump, just bite it, bite <laughs> it, get in. Well, we touched on national characteristics, you know, a country having a particular sound to it. And uh, British music is, is no different from any other. You think of Russian music, you think of French music. And I think the thing about English music is that in the 19th century, with the growth of our music colleges, you know, how many music colleges do you think, internationally reputed music colleges, do you think we have? Why do you ask me this? Four? No. Go on. It's many more. There are three top-notch, well, Mm. four, really, in Mm. in London alone. And then there's the Royal Conservatoire up in Glasgow, Scottish Academy. Then there's the Welsh College in Cardiff. There's the Birmingham Conservatoire. Birmingham. That's very, very British. We really do believe at grassroots in offering opportunities for young musicians. It's just the government that doesn't support art, Mm. but fundamentally society does. And they're in great demand, all the colleges. But the point I was going to make was that in the 19th century, the Royal College was particularly strong and a major character became professor of music there when he was only 29, Charles Villiers Stanford. Now that's a familiar name. Why? Why do we know his name so well? Well, predominantly now, although it's a shame, he's known for his church music. So there's Stanford in B-flat. These are services that he wrote, Magnificat Nunc Dimittis, and sometimes Morning Prayer as well, Matins services. There's Stanford in B-flat, Stanford in G, Stanford in A, anthems galore. He wrote a lot of church music, and that's really popular. He was an enormously prolific composer and teacher. He was not only professor of music at the Royal College, but he was also professor of music at Cambridge and taught at Trinity. He was a Trinity man. And famously, he disliked going into Cambridge so much in due course as he got older 
that he refused to leave the waiting room on Cambridge Station. (laughs) (laughs) So the students had to go. No. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. He turned into quite a grumpy old man. But this is the, the real key. His own musical backbone, really, was in the classical German tradition. So he thought Brahms was the way to go. Brahms was one of the most classically orientated of the German composers in the mid to late 19th century, mixed with a wonderful um, romantic sensitivity, which you can hear in the slow movement of his third symphony. that he had an enormous number of pupils. He had as pupils Rafe Vaughan Williams, Ernest Moran, everybody went to him. He and Parry, actually. Hubert Parry. Hubert Parry, who wrote I Was Glad and Jerusalem. They were the two Eminence Gris, but they were both deeply rooted in the German tradition. Now, it, immediately you... You look at what Vaughan Williams wanted to do, and you look at Frederick Delius, who's an exact contemporary, at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. They were all wanting to experiment. And the language, the musical language of Vaughan Williams and Moran and Delius, just as an example, they're all very personal. And they went to look for other influences. What nationality was Delius? English. Was he? Yes. It doesn't sound a terribly English name. I always thought rather Fred dimly. Delius. No, very... <laughs> Fred, Fred Delius. Fred Delius. Okay. <laughs> yes. Wonderful composer. But that leads us in... You just stopped that and you said there and you put your hands down your lap as if you've told me everything about it. I want to know how it then, how it then went on into future people, like how it, how it eventually would turn up into Harrison Birtwistle, for instance. How, well, how, where did he spring from? Well, the, the, the whole point about this is, I think, there was such a, a wonderful mix of styles then. Vaughan Williams, you see, eventually went off to study with Maurice Ravel in Paris. And Ravel said something quite remarkable when he mentioned the fact that he believed there was an English school of composition. Now, sometimes we forget this because in this country, we tend to take the German contemporaries, well, at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, Berg and Mahler. Richard Strauss. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. But we tend, to, we tend to treat them as if they're the masters. Mm. And our lot, Vaughan Williams and Moran and Delius, were all sidetrack. And there's a little bit of a mix-up here because learned critics, including George Bernard Shaw, actually accused some of our English composers then of being too interested in pastoral nostalgia. And poor Vaughan Williams was treated very badly sometimes, major figure though he was, And at one point, someone described his music as him rolling around in a muddy field, which actually just isn't fair because there was a real school and so many different influences. You can feel in Benjamin Britten's music, for example, and Michael Tippett's music, 
the real search for their own personal language. Those don't seem to me to be pastoral. I mean, Britain doesn't seem to be a pastoral composer. No, no, no. And Vaughan Williams, it's very unfair to only imagine Vaughan Williams through the lark ascending, which is very beautiful. But it's based on folk song and he doesn't make any apology for that. Mm. You know that lovely tune. This is based on on folk melody. Mm. The Lark Ascending is a particular beautiful uh, sort of intermezzo with with a solo violin. It's often chosen the Lark Ascending as the UK's favourite piece of music whenever they have these sort of charts and they go, what's number one? And look, they say it's the Lark Ascending again. There is a nostalgia here, but it's not only nostalgia for this country, it's nostalgia for the countryside, the air, the sense of a bird flying free. It's a very beautiful piece. And I think a lot of people who aren't necessarily grounded in classical music at all identify with that because it's got such a an accessible, ravishing freedom about it. Yes, and we had as an author Thomas Hardy, of course, and Thomas Mayor of Hardy, Casterbridge, Tess of the Dead, yes, and, so and he wrote so movingly, didn't he, about mm. real people in farming communities and in smaller towns, town life, and that's ve- that 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 does feed the soul in a way. Joanna here. Maestro Stephen Barlow and I want to hear from you, our wonderful listeners. Send us your classical music questions, queries, and concerns through to hello at joannaandthemaestro.com and we'll get back to you on the programme. Thank you so much. How was British music viewed on the continent? I don't know why the channel, the English channel, should create such a divide, but it does. And I've always felt there's a certain amount of snobbery between the French and the Germans and the Italian, about British things, about British food, British music, British... Do you think that was going on in the 19th century as well? Was a lot of English music played over on the continent? No, I don't think so. I think Elgar was championed by the famous conductor, Hans von Bülow. And Elgar, of course, straddled both sides. He wrote such wonderful nationalistic music, the pomp and circumstance marches, because there are several of those, and he was perfectly capable of writing pomp and circumstance kind of music. He wrote the wonderful comic overture, Cocaine, Mm. which is full of spirit that would have been received with great interest abroad, as well as here. You see, I think schools of art, particularly in music, they do, to a certain extent, remain rooted 
to a certain extent, in their own country's background and the way people think. Because we do this anyway. We mm. say, oh, that's very American, or oh, that's very Russian, or oh, we that's do. very Spanish French. We do, Spanish or something. Yeah, we you do. Know, you, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. One of the things, you know, I wanted to say was that when we move further on into the 20th century and the development of modernism, and you begin to look at the music of Stockhausen and Boulez, Pierre Boulez, we tend to neglect the fact that we had our own school of modern music. Harrison Burke was old, Maxwell Davis mm. and Alexander Gurr, who were all creating very, very singular, different kinds of music. What is it about the sound of Alexander Gurr's music that has a British quality? Nationalism in music is very difficult to pin down. But I think what identifies him is that you can sense influences both Italian and German in his music, but it is definitely his own, and he is very much of the English school. At the same time in the 19th century, there was a huge survival of, uh, re, survival, survival and revival, but um, music hall and public entertainment. So Gilbert and Sullivan and those sorts of tunes were tremendously popular. I'm thinking of tunes like A British Tar from HMS Pinafore, which were loved by everyone. Do you think that that maybe eclipsed the more classical side of music, where people were still listening with pleasure to the greats, as it were, to the Rossinis and and Beethoven and Mozart and things. And then they would then they would turn to English music and think it was Gilbert and Sullivan. I mean, Sullivan, obviously, Arthur Sullivan. Well, I, you think of all the Ivor Novello musicals. Ivor Novello was hugely popular. Yeah. Um, he, and Noel Coward as well. Yes. You, the, these were national, international stars. Yeah. And sometimes we think that operetta actually means lehar. Yeah. You know, Viennese operetta. Merry Widow. Ivor Novello, countless works of his, they're rarely done now. in this country, we can be, in certain circles, a little snobbish. And to a certain extent, people are still slightly snobbish about Ivor Novello's wonderful operettas 
like Glamorous Night. I'd love to hear a little bit of somebody who you just mentioned, and I'm afraid whose music I've never... A, his name I've never heard. B, his music I've certainly never heard. And that's Morin. Ernest Morin. Would well, just go on, please. Well, he, he, he was one of Stanford's pupils, and he also became interested, just like Vaughan Williams, in folk tradition. Mm. And he didn't write a great deal. Writing for him was not as easy as it was for some. He wasn't prolific. But what he did write are fantastic pieces. And they're, they're full of romance and anguish. He was a slightly troubled man. And his association with Peter Warlock, Philip Heseltine, involved quite a lot of drunken binges. But can you, can you just off the top of your head yep. pick out a piece of music for me? His violin mind? concerto is the most wonderful violin concerto, and it, it's, it's not often played. Tasman Little, I think, made a wonderful recording of it. Can we hear a bit of that now before you even go on another sentence? I want to hear Tasman. But Moran also wrote a lot of choral music. This was something that was very British too, the choral societies and, and choirs. And Vaughan Williams also was very much in touch with choral societies, so he wrote lots of oratorios, one of the most haunting of which is Sancta Civitas, which we did when I was a chorister at Canterbury, and I've never forgotten that. But Moran's choral music, rather like Bach's, Arnold Bach's, another composer that is often put aside in favour of others, all of their choral music is accessible to choirs. It's not too hard, so nobody loses confidence in tackling them. Is it common, you, you compose, but do people ever come to you for composition classes? I mean, is, was it normal for composers to have pupils or students or admirers to come to them and ask for their kind attention and then spend a, a week, a, an afternoon, a day, a fortnight, a month, a year with them and learn more about composition. How did it work? You, I know, studied with Alan Riddart, the great composer. Yeah, but I also, I, I, that was amazing with Alan, but I also, when I was in the National Youth Orchestra, had lessons from Herbert Howells. And Herbert Howells was taught by Stanford and he showed me the ring on his little finger that Stanford had bequeathed to him. So there's the most extraordinary link. I'd love those things. So I was taught by a man who was taught by Stanford. And of course, Stanford would have met 
the late 19th century composers and conductors four generations back. You didn't answer my question very clearly. <laughs> do, do composers usually encourage other composers? Because it's an odd thing, because composing, of course, is, is not a creation. And I don't know a lot of writers who encourage young writers. Maybe if they are a kind of a competent writer, they might have a, um, a summer school where everybody can come along and do their own compositions and somebody can say, this would work better if you did this and that end piece or you need to colour that up there or whatever. But do composers do that? Yep. Every music college, all of those music colleges I mentioned earlier on have composition courses, mm. composition tutors, and all the composers I know are and have been very happy to talk to young composers. The thing is, you can't really learn without experiencing what it, others who are doing what you want to do. So young composers really spend a lot of time honing their own, their own musical ideas through collaboration with hopefully a teacher for quite a long time at the beginning of it. Anyway, it is not just a question of having an idea and writing it down. You really have to work hard to develop something that really says what you want to say. And a composition teacher might even question whether what you think you want to say is worth saying, if you see what I mean. In the film, so it is a film and therefore it's supposition, of Amadeus, when Mozart is on his deathbed and trying to complete the Requiem, Salieri, in the story, is sitting by his bed and Mozart, practically near to death, is just saying... And then Sunset comes in and then he goes, bah, bah, bah. And Salieri says, yes, 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 got that, got that. Because he knows, sort of, once the idea has been put into his head that Mozart would be doing next, he, as a composer himself, knew kind of how it would go. That doesn't seem to me so possible with modern music, which seems to have a much freer form. Oh, I, know, I know you will say it's, it's, it's exactly, it's strict and so on, it has a meter. But to the listener, it sounds, quite honestly, a bit haphazard. Um, some of it, you know, a bit challenging to people like me. So if somebody said to me, where, where are you going with this piece of music? And you go, well, I'm just going, and how would anybody know that you were going to do that? <laughs> how would you know? So you would, so Salieri wouldn't go, yes, yes, I get it, I get it, and just scribble no, it down. No, the development of music, some people would say rashly, leapt towards a cliff edge and took a leap into the, into the dark around about 1910, 1912, 1905, when Arnold Schoenberg constructed a theory about where music should now be going, i.e. breaking the rules of tonality, which means the key in which a piece is set. And so he invented this theoretical process where each note would be equal and not have a relationship with any other chord. Now, now this is, You've got to this, explain this a little bit more. You've taken us from Stanford and the influence of Brahms through to Vaughan Williams and Arnold Schoenberg. And now, which piece of music should we leave our listeners with as they contemplate the musical turn of the 20th century? Uh, Arnold Bax's wonderful November Woods, which is a fantastically inventive tone poem full of colour and life. It's an example of British composers breaking away from European influence and laying the ground for a new truly British school into the 20th century. 
In this episode, you heard the following music Nunc Dimittis in B flat by Charles Villiers Stanford. It was performed by Simon Morley and the Truro Cathedral Choir, conducted by Andrew Nethsinger. The record label was Priory Records, courtesy of BFM Digital. Symphony No. 3 in F Major, Opus 90, Third Movement, Poco Allegretto, Third Movement, by Johannes Brahms. It was performed by the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Nikolaus Hornencourt, and record label was Teldec Classics International. The Lark Ascending, by Rafe Vaughan Williams. It was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sir Andrew Davis. The publisher was Oxford University Press, and record label was Warner Classics and Jazz, Warner Music UK. Cocaine Overture, Opus 40, in London Town, by Sir Edward Elgar, performed by BBC London Orchestra and conducted by Sir Andrew Davies. The record label was Warner Classics, Warner Music UK. The Deluge, Opus 7, Scene 1, by Alexander Gurr. It was performed by Claire Booth, Hilary Summers, Oliver Knussen, and the Birmingham Contemporary Music Group. The publisher was Shop Music Limited and record label NMC Recordings. A British Tar by W.S. Gilbert and Arthur Sullivan, performed by Alfie Bow, Stephanie Davis, James Cleverton, and the Men Chorus. The record label was J Productions Limited. Glamorous Night by Ivor Novello. The publisher was Chappelle and Co. Limited, and record label was H and H Music Limited. Concerto for Violin and Orchestra, Second Movement, Rondo Vivace, by Ernest John Moran. It was performed by the BBC Philharmonic and Tasman Little. The conductor was Sir Andrew Davies, and the record label was Chandos Records. Sancta Civitas, and I Saw Heaven Opened, by Rafe Vaughan Williams, performed by David Hill, Matthew Brook, Andrew Staples, the Winchester Cathedral Choristers, and the Winchester College Quiristers, the Bath Choir, and Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra. The record label was Naxos. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner, licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.